a key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. This week, I have the opportunity of speaking with Sam Smolik, who is the retired Senior VP, America's Manufacturing for Lyondell Bissell Industries. Sam has a long history in the chemical industry, and in fact, you may know him from his time leading EHS at either Lyondell Bissell, Shell, or Dow. Today, he sits on the board of directors at Exalta Coding Systems, Evergreen Industries, and Ducks Unlimited. And most importantly, and what we're really here Uh, to talk about today is Sam has turned his 50 years of career success into several books, including The Daily Pursuit of Excellence. Sam, welcome to The Chemical Show. Well, thank you, Victoria. Very nice introduction. Uh, We should stop right there. (laughs) Well, but we're not. So, So Sam, tell us a bit more about you. What is your origin story? What brought you to the chemical industry? Well, I went to a small high school and, um, and I, and I always enjoyed math and science. I was just a natural in math. Uh, English, that's a different story. But uh, so the counselors would say, well, you need to be an engineer. And I didn't know what that was. And, and so um, I, I ended up getting a scholarship to the University of Texas and in chemical engineering. And so that's what I did. I went to chemical engineering. And, um, you know, it, it's just some, some people grow up these days, young people, and they have all kind of advisors, and uh, they they know what lies ahead. I was pretty naive, and and didn't really know. Although you know, I went and made good grades, and and enjoyed every minute of it. So it's turned out okay. That's awesome. And then that and then that took you into the chemical industry, right? I, I graduated um, chemical engineering degree. I went to work for Dow Chemical in the organic process research department. So we were doing. Uh, research on toluene disocyanate and methylene disocyanate, all the, the intermediates that go into uh, foam for your beds and, and car cushions, things like that. And uh, yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to get one U.S. patent during my R&D days. So uh, that was a great start. Yeah. And then it looks like you spent most of your career really in operations in one way, shape or form. Exactly. Um, I was in research for seven years and and uh, progressed pretty fast. And then I started supervising a lot of folks, but I felt that I really didn't have the background, you know, to be mm-hmm. rising like that. I think you can be promoted too fast yeah. personally. And um, we were doing process research. So we would determine uh, ways to improve chemical processes, but then you had to convince the manufacturing people to do it. And I always felt they were like cavemen. You know, they they didn't want to take a chance. <laughs> and uh, and so finally I said, you know what, I, I'm going to move into manufacturing where I can control these decisions and be a little more aggressive. And uh, so I told my my supervisors I would like to do it. And they said, that's great. And so I moved in uh, 
uh, in the allo chloride plant, allo chloride and epichlorohydrin, which is a you know precursor for epoxy resins and uh, glycerin and uh, products like that. So, yeah, that started off a string of manufacturing jobs at, at different plants, and um, and I, <laughs> I developed a reputation for being able to go into a troubled plant and not only improve the technology but motivate the people and build a team that that was a winning team and so i would do that after three or four years my reward would be to get sent to another bad plant and uh which in the end it it was great learning experiences because you know if you're in a manufacturing plant that just runs good all the time it's it's not a challenge but if you have troubles you know i'm kind of optimistic by nature and i'd see a problem as an opportunity to to learn and get better yeah and so it's a great career that's awesome so what are some of the most powerful lessons you learned along the way well <clears throat> you know I, I i learned that you can talk about a team improving performance but a, a team is only as good as its weakest link and so you very quickly find out it's all about people and yeah. Being, being able to to hire the right people, to train them, to motivate them, to uh, set very clear expectations and hold them accountable. You know, like uh, there's a there's a philosophy ABC antecedent behavior consequence. You know, on behavior management yeah. that says for any behavior there always is a consequence. You know, and the most important consequences are positive. So. Right. When somebody does something good, you need to recognize them for it. You know, positive recognition is very important. You know, on the other hand, if they don't do things the right way, you can't ignore it. And so I just learned very early on that that you have to have the right people, make sure they have the right skills. And and then uh, and most people will rise to the expectations. They just had poor leadership in the past. And they just needed somebody to to really set them forward. You see that in football or sports. You know, you'll have a group of people that have a mediocre team, and you get a new coach comes in, and with the same people, they excel. And I remember uh, Vince Lombardi. They would talk about him, the, the famous NFL coach. They say he can beat he can beat you with his team, and he can beat you with your team. You know, and so. <laughs> Yeah. That's the way I always felt about it is, is, uh, you know, bring out the best people's talents. And I write about that in my new book. Uh, yeah. So let's, so let's talk lessons. about the book. Let's talk about what, what prompted you to write the daily pursuit of excellence and and what's it all about? Well, uh, let me finish my career story. So after uh, 20 years, 25 years of manufacturing, then Dow chemical, uh, called me one day, my supervisors and said, we'd like to promote you to, uh, global vice president for environment, health and safety and security and sustainable development. And at the time I said, well, who did I make mad? I don't want that functional job. I want, I like line management. And they wanted me to, you know, I'd worked in Europe for a few years. And uh, so they wanted somebody with global experience and somebody that could, could drive improvement. And so for the first time in my career, instead of having line management, my job was all about influencing others. You know, so we had 400 locations around the world. So very simply, I had to drive improvement across all those locations. 
And uh, you can imagine that's a big challenge. And yeah, and it and it really emphasizes the importance to influence others. You know, so how do you influence those locations? How do you influence the hearts and minds of the individuals at those various locations? And uh, so I did that for four years, and then Shell came along and recruited me to to do the same thing for them. So I ran all their global environment, health, and safety for the downstream business for Shell. And Shell's an enormous company. I mean, it's we had 30 refineries. We had 55,000 gas stations. You know, so again, I continued to 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 refine my processes and an approach to to making that happen. And then I ended up at Lionel Bazell. That company um, went bankrupt in the beginning of 2009, and we they got a new CEO. He put together a new management team, which I joined to bring the company back out of bankruptcy. And you know, we turned it into one of the best and safest uh, plants in the industry or companies in the industry. So going back to your question, sorry for the long prelude yeah. there. I was just so fortunate for many, many years to work with great people, influence others and drive performance improvement in all companies, you know, our per- performance accelerated. And, um, you know, the focus was on safety, but it takes the same things for safety as it does for reliability, for quality, you know, for business success. And so it's all about people and and systems and culture in the company. So what led me to write the book after I retired, uh, I do some consulting, not a lot, but every time I'd go to somebody that's got a problem, I think to myself, well, we've solved that already. You know, we've, we've already solved it. Yeah. And so when COVID came, I thought, you know what, if you're going to ever write this down, write in a book, now's your time when travel stopped. And so that's what I did. I just decided to take things that that we learned through the years and and put it in a simple form. I have my book is written with a lot of small sections of maybe 100 different things that we found to be effective in uh, in influencing others and driving performance improvement. And so that's what my book is about, the the daily pursuit of excellence. Awesome. So, you know, one of the fundamentals in the book, Sam, is operational excellence. And that seems to be the, a theme that kind of maybe rolls through your career, but also flows through this book. What's your formula for operational excellence? What does it mean to you? Well, I had a a, um, a boss of a boss one time. He came in and talked to a group of folks. He said, he said, you can either work every day and have mediocre results, or you can work trying to be the best. And that just stayed with me. You know, why, why not work to be the best? Mm. And so when you want to be the best, you want to win. Uh, that means everything needs, you need to strive for perfection and, and realize that nothing's perfect, but you'll hit excellence along the way. So we, use the phrase operational excellence. A lot of companies will use different terminology, but, um, you know, a a story I like to tell is about restaurants. Okay. So you've been to a lot of good restaurants, probably Victoria, right? Yes. And, and if one is good. And I've been to a few bad ones as well, unfortunately. (laughs) Okay. So, so, but the good ones, if they're good, not great, but good, 
you might go back or you might go somewhere else, right? It, it's it's okay. Right. And the bad ones, you remember those. And you'll never go back. And you'll probably tell others about it. If, if someone says, you know, I'd like to go to this restaurant, you say, oh, no, stay away from there. I had a terrible experience. So nobody wants to be bad. But then there's some that are excellent. I mean, they're cream of the crop restaurants. And yeah. that's the kind that you'll make reservations way in advance. You might even pay more when you go in there. I mean, it looks good. Uh, the food is great. The service is great. You tell other people about it. You brag about it to others. Right. And, and that's the way I used to tell our people, say, look, we want to be the best. We want to be the cream of the crop because we want people to brag about our company or our plant and tell others about it. And once you get that philosophy, it's like the, the Super Bowl with, that we just had, right? Yeah. You have two teams that are cream of the crop, right? And they didn't get there by being good. They got there by being excellent. And, it, and they got there by each person on the team doing their job in an excellent manner, you know, avoiding mistakes and driving top performance at all time. And so that's what a coach does. That's what a leader does they influence others to be better and, and yeah. to do their best. So my formula that I came up with is there's really four components. I like to simplify. So if you want to achieve excellence, everybody knows it begins with leadership. Okay. And, and we can talk about leadership all day long, but people do the work. So people, you have to have the right people. Uh, doing the right thing at all times and always giving the best effort. Like a, if you go into a hotel, you can tell where the people come up to you. They want, you know, they want to take care of every detail or they're sitting over there. They don't care. I mean, it's, it's obvious. Yeah. So leadership, people, but systems, you have the winning teams, winning companies have a good management system and not just one that's on the books that nobody looks at, but one that is usable the standards, the processes are simple and people follow it because it eliminates variation. So you get your system right. And then finally, culture. Culture is it do people follow the system? Do people live it? You know, do they meet your expectations every day? And so a good management technique is if you get your system right, which is how work is supposed to be done, and they get your culture right which is how work is actually done, then you can focus on leadership and people. You know, but a lot of companies, that they blow past the basics. You know, they have an aspiration that, you know, inspire, they want to be a certain way, but they don't have the capability to get it. And they wonder, you know, why don't we deliver the right kind of results? You know, well, they haven't eliminated variation in their process and, and created a, a system that uh, says how you do it. No. Nick Saban, uh, you know, the Alabama football coach. <clears throat> I've given a lot of football examples. I, That's all right. I, I like football. I played football in high school, and so uh, I love football. But Nick Saban, uh, and and part of my job, you know, as I as I worked on how to influence others and and drive results, I would study leadership in companies, but also in sports, because it's it's, take, it's the same philosophy. Nick Saban is the only coach that I heard for many years would talk about his system. He said, we have a system for how we recruit. We have a system for how we develop people. 
We have a system for how we prepare for a game. We have a system for how we do the game. And if I hire a new assistant coach, I don't want that coach to come in and coach his way. I want him to learn our system. And then if he's got improvements, let's talk about it. Because if you allow every person to do it their own way, you never will achieve excellence. Yeah, And that's a problem that companies have. If they are leader-centric, people-centric, so they allow every, say, a plant manager or department manager or hotel manager, whatever, to do things their own way, then they're only as good as that person. And it might be great or it might be bad. you know. But if you have a system for how you do things and then let people use their talents on top of that, you have a chance to be an outstanding. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that I do think having the systems is so critical. Um, and I see the same thing. A lot of times it's surprising the businesses that don't have systems. And, and I think sometimes people get confused because they'll say, oh, well, you're being too process centric. Right. And, and there's a difference between being process heavy and being system true. Right. Um, the whole aspect of repeatability and consistency is critical, right? We know that when you think about it in the chemical industry, we know it because we want our products to be consistent every time, but we want our business practices and our business processes and the systems to be consistent and make it easier. Fewer decisions, you just know what happens, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, another philosophy throughout the book is simplicity. Yeah. And and I'm a very strong believer in that. That And, and if you talk about the word system, People interpret that in many different ways. Some people might think, well, God, that's a bureaucracy. Everybody has to do everything the same way. And that is totally not my message. You yeah. know, I believe in the 80-20 rule to standardize on the critical things that are important, but leave 80-90% for people to use their, their flexibility. So when I talk about a system, I'll give you an example at Shell. Yeah, do that. When I got to Shell, um, we had 22,000 trucks on the road every day delivering jet fuel, gasoline to all our stations and airports and all that. 22,000. So oh, you can wow. imagine when I joined, there were a lot of uh, traffic incidents, a lot of injuries, a lot of fatalities. I mean, it was incredible. And and so I started, and and even personal cars, you know, salespeople, whatever, would, would have accidents. So I asked, I said, do we have a a safe driving standard. Well, we didn't, you know, so I, I commissioned a few people to go develop a, a safe driving standard. Well, they brought it back to me. It was 56 pages, you know, talked about the kind of tires. That's kind of hard to follow. Well, I said, who's going to read this? Nobody will read this. You know, this is ineffective. And so I said, make it shorter. So they brought it back and I had about 30 pages. I said, no, no, it's got to be. I want just a few, just a, some things people will remember. And then this one guy said, ah, oh, Sam, you want the, the Ten Commandments, not the Bible. And I said, hey, you've got it. And so they brought it back. And I think we had, I don't know, 12 or 13 um, mandatory items if you're driving a vehicle. You know, simple things like you must have a driver's license. Um, Pre-plan your trip. You know, don't take off and then be looking at a map. Uh, of course, now the iPhone, but, you know, while you're driving, you know, simple things. And then we worked on 
with all of our companies that did driving for us to reinforce those simple items. And, and our performance improved dramatically. And so your system needs to be practical. It needs to be something people want because it helps them. And if you feel like if people say it's too bureaucratic, reduce it. And there's some sections in my book that give specific examples about how to simplify a system, how to simplify a standard or a work process, and even how you write it. There's something called the flesh factor that uh, simplifies uh, reading material. In other words, is it is it USA Today type of reading or is it Harvard Business Review reading? Or is it an IRS document complexity? Yeah. You know, yeah. there's ways to measure that. So we taught all of our uh, standard writers and process writers how to write in a in a very clear and simple manner. Yeah. And, I, and Sammy, you and I overlapped at Shell um, for a period of time, although we didn't work together and didn't know each other at that time. But I do recall even just, you know, being able to distill something down to one page, simple picture, simple words. Um, it it makes it easy to understand. It makes it easy to share, et cetera. So there's a lot to be said for that. So so I'm going to turn a little bit. You've worked at several leading companies in the industry, um, Shell, Dow, Line, Delta Cell. They're all leaders, and yet they all seem to have really different approaches to business, to operations, and to operational excellence as you frame this, this high, uh, the system, how do you differentiate or distinguish their approaches? What, how do you characterize this in terms of similarities and differences and what makes them who they are? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, these, uh, Dow and Shell are, are hundred plus year old companies. And so, you know, you establish a culture over the years of who you are. So when I joined Dow, um, they had a very, very strong safety culture, process safety culture to eliminate incidents. And, and I learned a whole lot working at Dow. I I would put from a, from a manufacturing point of view, I put Dow up against anybody. Uh, When I went to Shell, Shell had a different history. It was a joint venture, Royal Dutch Shell. You remember that? Yeah. It was a, the joint venture until 2005 and and they had a committee of managing directors they didn't have a ceo and so they they did just the opposite of what i'm talking about they allowed they had it was called the royal dutch shell group of companies they were like 2000 subsidiaries and uh they uh excuse me they um so so they would hire good people to go run these different subsidiaries and it gets back to what I was saying. You're only as good as the people you put in place. And I think that system served Shell very well for the first 80 or 90 years. But in the 90s and the early 2000s, by the time Internet came around and, and the world became communication was much easier, Shell got left behind because these companies that were standardizing on a global basis were starting to take the lead. And uh, Shell got in a a big trouble in 2003 by not uh, uh, classifying reserves consistently. The SEC came after them. The CEO got fired. The, uh, you know, the the stock took a big hit. So in 2004. Yeah, I remember those times. 
yeah, it was really sad for the people at Shell. So I hired on in 2004. <clears throat> what they were doing was hiring people like myself to come in and build a global function for uh, to, to drive consistency in how and how things were done. So that was a different experience for me. Um, and then lined up Zell had just become a company. They were they had two companies merge just before they went bankrupt. And so there we didn't really have a historical culture. There were there were two cultures that hadn't come together yet. And so it's perfect because I could come in together with our leadership and we created a, a culture that was in our own image. And yeah. uh, it was fantastic. And I put Lionel Bazell now as as the leader, one of the leaders in the industry. Yeah, interesting. Well, and, and I think this maybe becomes the subject of a completely different podcast. But, you know, I think um, when you talk about companies being leader led versus system led, I, I think for many years, Lionel Delbacell was really leader led. And, and so it's behaviors were in many ways influenced by the leaders in charge at the time that may have evolved. And I think that's, um, I guess, to be determined as they've got, you know, a new CEO recently here in the past year. Yeah, no, it's a great company. Um, the reliability is, is best in class. Um, you know, I own a lot of stock in line doubles. <laughs> so you want to keep it doing well. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So, so how do you see individuals applying these concepts um, that you talk about in your book? You know, when I think about the the daily pursuit, it's kind of the, you know, how do we do this on a daily basis? Well, what I did, um, this is actually, I modified it. The first book that I wrote was called The Power of Goal Zero. And Goal Zero was the fundamental philosophy behind a culture of excellence. And we 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 a couple of us came together and developed Goal Zero at Shell back in 2007, I think it was, and then I just carried on to to Lionel Bazell the first day I was there. I said we're going to be a a Goal Zero company, yeah, uh, which means zero incidents, zero defects, zero people getting hurt, and and that philosophy really has, I mean, it, it just it simplifies things. People can understand. It does. It. So I wrote this book, the the uh, power of goal zero, and a lot of companies started using it and, and training. Some universities picked it up for training, and then I thought, as I would go out and promote the book and talk to people, that um, I wrote it about improving a, a company, and I thought, you know what, people want to know what's in it for me, and so I wasn't satisfied with it. And so I decided to to rewrite the book, and I, I named it The Daily Pursuit of Excellence. And I changed the whole approach in the book, not about how to improve a company, but how you as an individual can improve your performance and then influence others to improve their performance. And so I still talk about the same concepts of a goal zero culture, uh, the importance of a simple system and all that, but it's all aimed at individuals and how you can you can influence others no matter what your job is i, I tell one one story in there about this um <clears throat> most of the the plants that i ran in my early days had a lot of trouble and you know the, the morale was not good and you had to fix all that 
Well, I went to one plant, the vinyl chloride plant. It was uh, unit one in our Oyster Creek division. And immediately I was amazed by the, the technicians on the front line. They had four or five guys that were leaders. They influenced others. They said, we're going to do things the right way. And I went, wow, this is fantastic. You know, so I didn't really have to work on them, but it showed the power of leadership at any level. You know, any person, if you're a subject matter expert or whatever, you can you can drive excellence and influence others around you to make the whole team uh, be good. So I think uh, your answer your question. I wrote the book so that anybody who reads it, it's about you as an individual. The first first chapter is all about ethics and integrity, and you know, do what you say you're going to do, and you know, try things that I learned that. I think will help people to be a you know better person, and yeah. then I get into uh, leadership and influencing others, and uh, you know things how you can make make the workplace fun. Uh, talk about uh, life balance as opposed to work life balance. I, you know, I get into a lot of things like that that yeah. I, I think so, are helpful. So ex- explain more about um, life balance. I know you, you reference this life balance instead of work life balance. What what does that mean? You know, it's just one section in the book, and uh, but I, I I gave a keynote speech a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, people several of the people had read my book, and one person said, "Sam, everybody is talking about work life balance, and instead you talk about life balance." And I said, "Well, you know, I think it's a mental thing. Um, when I say life balance, I, I found a formula a long time ago uh, as seven F's." Life is about a balance of faith, family, friends, finance, fitness, future focus, and fun. Okay. And the philosophy is to not neglect any of those seven items for very long. You know, we'll get we'll get consumed by work for a while. But if you neglect your family, that's a bad deal, right? Right. If you if you if you don't um eat right and uh, sleep and uh, exercise, you know, fitness is going to impact your performance and your yeah. health. So anyway, life balance. And then what I don't like about work-life balance is work is such a big part of your life, you know, and you can either approach work as a job. I'm going to come and do my job and I'm going to go home. Or you can approach it as a career and part of your life and try to achieve excellence in your life all the time, whether you're at work or not. And so I talked a lot about that to my departments, people I worked with, because I think if you talk work-life balance, people, they mentally, they try to drive a barrier between it. And if you think about work, think about the seven Fs. You have a lot of friends at work. You know, your friends aren't just, in your life over here, they're also in your work. You have fun at work. You know, I always said, hey, let's have fun. Let's enjoy what we're doing. Uh, finance, you know, you're not born rich. You have to work. So that's where work comes in to, to provide finance so you can do other things. You know, so it's just integrated. And I believe in a philosophy of life balance. And, uh, you know, I was able to, throughout my career, I, I was working in tough plants. And uh, my son 
when he uh, got to be, I think, five years old, uh, he was ready to start uh, T-ball and baseball. And I'd always planned on coaching my son. That was just a given. Yeah. And yet I was at work late every day. And I thought, God, how can I do this? So I really fretted over it. I said, well, you know, what's life all about if you can't do the things that you really want to do? So I finally went to my boss and I said, hey, I, I want to coach my son's baseball team. And I'll have to leave, you know, 3.30 or so for practice and games. You know, I said, but I'll come back out. You know me. I'll, I'll come back out afterwards or at night, weekends, whatever I need to do. He said, go for it. And I coached uh, nine years baseball while running plants and having demanding jobs. That's impressive. So I've told that story to many young people. They tell me, you know, because I always ask them about their family and, you know, what are your kids doing and are you involved? And it's, oh, no, I just don't have time for that. And I said, no, no, no. That's, yeah. a, that's a bad excuse. If you don't say I don't have time for it, you say everything else is higher priority because you choose the things that you do. That's right. And, um, you know, and a lot of people have told me later on, they, they appreciated that advice. So to me, it's life balance. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's doing, hard. This podcast, that, that... doing this podcast, you know, I, I don't have to do this, but I, yeah. if I can help a few people down the line, then to me, I, I enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the challenges in terms of the whole life balance thing is um, being bold enough to ask for it. And to create that to happen, because I think some people don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that. And then it gets back to culture, a culture, um, a work environment, your your prioritizations that allow that to happen. Because at the end of the day, especially today with virtual working and hybrid working and <laughs> being connected 24-7, whether we want to be or not, it is life. Work and life are commingled. Um, and so we have to figure out how to create the priorities um, and carve out time to do things at different times. And, um, you know, when I worked a corporate role, we always, you know, it, you did that, you you figured out ways to balance it. And, you know, frankly, I'd sometimes say, hey, I got to get home. And yeah, I'm going to be back online at eight o'clock at night when the kids are in bed and I'm whatever, but I've got to be present when they're present. Yeah, that's perfect, Victoria. Yeah. You know, it starts with setting your priorities. <clears throat> you know, what's important to you? What do you what do you want to achieve? And that's why the seven F's are so helpful, because you can go back to them all the time and say, am I am I shortchanging any of these? Do I not need to change? Because our behaviors, it's we control it. Yeah. And like you said, you got to have confidence to to do the right things. But um you know, one other thing I learned in, in a time management class years ago, they uh, they said, um, how many of you find it? You don't have enough time to call your mother as often as you should. And much people raise their hand and say, well, you know, life is a matter of priorities. OK, so what you need to do, don't tell your mother, mom, I, I never have time to call. What you need to say, everything else I do, mom, is higher, is more important than calling you. And uh, I said, well, I'm never going to say that. So I always made a point to call my mother. Yeah. And so it's it's as simple as that. You know, yeah. what are your priorities? And, you know, I don't think any company expects you to work, you know, 16 hours a day. Now, there's times where you do, right? 
you know, there's time, oh, there's times where your family is demanding a lot of times somebody's yeah. sick or whatever, you know, so short times is fine, but on a long sustained basis, it's, it's not healthy. And, yeah. and I find that people that are, that enjoy life and are more balanced, they, they're better contributors at work. And, uh, it, it's just amazing. I, when I, when I coached baseball, when I did a lot of things outside, I, I, I found I was more efficient with my time as opposed Absolutely. to. Yeah. And, and you're fresh, your mind gets away on the other thing that you come back and, and you're ready to get it. So I, I think life balance to me, that that's, that, that that's, that's the awesome. way to approach. So Sam, you sit on the board of several companies. Um, Exalta, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Evergreen. How do you bring your experience and some in this focus of excellence into being an effective board member, into influencing what these companies do? Are you able to do that? Well, it's more difficult being a board member because you, you don't run the company. You know, you you provide oversight, uh, governance, and um you know, maybe you spend 30 or 40 days a year uh, on a board role. Uh, but <clears throat> you can definitely convey at the board level your expectations. And and my job on boards, I'm an operations guy. So all the boards typically have a lot of finance people uh, or ex-commercial people or whatever. Yeah. I, mean, so I don't pretend to be the subject matter expert there, but I I can go head to head with anybody when it comes to safety and operations and operational excellence. And so what I do is I, I, I put out an expectation of, of excellence in how we, how we manage the company. And, and I like to begin with safety because if you, everybody understands the importance of safety and if you get safety, right then other things start to be right. Because if someone is working hard to prevent injury or, or prevent an incident from happening, then they're more likely to not make it, uh, errors on other things that affect reliability or quality of the product. And so <clears throat> I expect our safety statistics to be best in class. And, um, you know, because leaders, leaders set the tone. Tone at the top is so important. And so that's that's the role the board can have, and you have a lot of influence over the CEO and, and top management and companies, uh, and hopefully they 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 get the message and and you're aligned, and when you're aligned, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. This has been this has been really good. So I'm going to close with one question for you. Um, you know, if there was just one key takeaway, if somebody did just one thing based on. Um, after reading your book, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> That's hard. I, you got a hundred nuggets in there and I'm making you boil it down to one, but yeah. Well, if, when I read a book, if I take away one or two good tips, I, I feel it was worthwhile. And I guarantee anybody who reads my book, uh, you know, the daily pursuit of excellence, if they don't come away with a bunch of tips, they need to contact me. I'll give them their money back. Because there's there's so much in there that either you didn't know or you forgot. And so, um, you know, I think uh, to summarize, uh, you know, anything that you do, you should try to be best in class. You know, it makes no sense to just be good. You know, be excellent. Be the best. You know, housekeeping 
is critically important. Little things, you know, because if you are, you have a chance of winning and everybody likes to be on a winning team. And so try to be a winner, try to be, uh, you know, cream of the crop. And that's motivating for your people. It helps in recruiting others. I mean, there's just so many good things associated with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and things don't always go great. So when things are bad, you learn from it and you get better, you know? So that's, uh, that would be the, I guess that I would sum up the book is strive for excellence. That's why I call it the daily pursuit of excellence. It takes every day and every small detail has to be right. If you're going to achieve excellence. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks for um, sharing the book and your insights with us. Thanks for being part of the podcast. Um, and we will make sure there's a, a link for people to buy the book. Um, Good. I appreciate that. So that. They can read that. And Thanks thank for you for joining us today on The Chemical Show. Been fun. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode just for you. Thanks. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.